All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rise Together podcast. I am so excited that today I have Sarah Wilson on. Sarah is a former journalist and TV presenter. She's an author and an activist. She is the she wrote the New York Times bestsellers I Quit Sugar and First We Make the Beast Beautiful, which Mark Manson described as the best book on living with anxiety that he'd ever read. Ooh, I like this. She's the author of another 11 cookbooks that sell in 52 different countries. And previously, she was the editor of Cosmopolitan Australia, the host of MasterChef Australia, and the founder of the largest wellness website in Australia, iQuitSugar.com. In May of 2018, she closed the business, gave all the money to charity, and now builds and enables charity projects that engage humans with each other and campaigns on mental health and climate issues. I like this. This Sarah is bringing light to this world. She ranks as one of the top 200 most influential authors in the world and has a combined digital reach of two and a half million human beings. She's also here in part because she has a new book coming out. The new book is This One Wild and Precious Life. It's a soul's journey through the complexities of climate change, coronavirus, racial inequalities, and our disconnection from what matters and getting back to life. She hikes around the world. She's met unbelievable people along the way. And she is an expert with hopeful wisdoms about vibrant solutions that will help us get through despair to a better version of our world. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Sarah Wilson to the Rise Together podcast. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis. And I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise together. Thank you so much for such a such a kind and and lengthy intro. Thank you. Well, the thing is, if you weren't doing a ton to change this world, bringing so much goodness to it, it wouldn't be such a long intro. I, I of course, am reading off of something that regales the kind of career and impact that you've had. But I always like to start these conversations by letting our guests, in their own words, describe a little of why they are on this planet, what in the heck your mission is, what you hope to have. Um, as your impact when your life is over years from now when people are talking about you, what do you hope they say? Oh, gosh, that's an awesome question, Dave. I love it. All right. So I would say I'm, I sort of fr- borrow this phrase from James Hollitz, an awesome American Jungian therapist. And he says, our souls get called to an appointment with life and our job is to show up. And we'll get a tap on the shoulder. If we ignore it, we'll get a shove. And then eventually we'll be just slammed, you know, and until until we wake up and and really and, and show up to the appointment, you know, um, and join life and do what it's asking us to do. And for me, I suppose I'm in my late 40s. I'm rapidly approaching 50. I, I'm in firm denial of it. But um, I have I've arrived at a point, Dave, where I feel my job is to be of service. I feel that every human right now is getting the same calling, you know, to join life and to preserve the, the life that we love on this planet, this one wild and precious life that we have together. And it's getting more urgent. Every 
Coronavirus is a tap on the shoulder as a collective call to action. The political fragmentation that we're seeing, so many of the phenomena that we're seeing, it's a collective call to action. So I suppose I rose to it a number of years ago in my mid-30s. I had a huge wake-up call and that's when I decided to, I guess, dedicate my life to, to assisting other humans in connecting better, deeper, richer and living the fullest life they can in the allotted years they have here. So, um, yeah, that's what I do. I foster, I'm a full-time foster mum, a single, a single mother. It occurred to me kind of a few months into the process of becoming a foster mother. She's an Indigenous girl. She's had a very, very rough life and, and we were sort of just ensconced. She came for a weekend because I've been fostering for a number of years, but on a respite and emergency basis. But this one never left, bless her. And it, we, I sort of got partway in and went, oh, my God, not only am I a single mother, I'm also the, the, the sole breadwinner and I've got no deadbeat husband, ex-husband in the background to take her on weekends, you know. So, so yes, I do that and that engages me in the Indigenous kind of realm and everything that's going on here in Australia, which is which is big. It's big. And there's a lot of work to be done. And then I, as you said, I gave um, all of my I Quit Sugar money to, to charity. So that, it's about 80% of my income I, I give away. And it's it's fun. It's fun not to care about this oh. stuff and to negotiate in a business sort of sense. And everybody's trying to sort of cut corners. And I'm like, hey, it doesn't bother me. I don't get the money Anyway, it's on your conscience if you actually want to skimp and save around, you know, what is essentially charity money. And, yeah, I live a life of pretty radical minimalism, actually. I don't own a car. I ride a a bike that I built. And it's ironic, isn't it? Because you said in your intro, I was the editor of Cosmopolitan. I've worked in mainstream media all my life. Um, I trained under Rupert Murdoch. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a bit of a contradiction in terms that I've arrived at a great spot where I feel that living out that contradiction in a way that makes sense right now is probably what I aim to do. That's my contribution. That's what I'd like in my epitaph. Bridge the gap between the commercial and the ideal. (laughs) Oh, man, what an amazing, like, as a thing to aim for, everyone ought to in some way. There's some interesting similarities. We both had Rupert Murdoch as a boss. We've both been foster parents. Oh. We're both dedicating our lives to this attempt at pouring into other human beings. Uh, philanthropy is a big part of our lives. I love it. I'm interested, though, because of any of the things that you just said, the idea that each of us have an appointment that we have been invited to is a very interesting thing. I, I just was on stage yesterday. I was describing having for a long time clung to some suffering that I was familiar with because I could predict it. I knew it well, and I didn't leave what I knew so well for so long a period of time because of the fear of what it might mean to answer the appointment. I didn't use your words, but the same kind of idea. I wonder, like, what is it do you think that keeps us as a collective from answering the call to the appointments when I think all of us at some place, whether it's by ourselves at night, when we're you know, alone with our intuition, or we hear that kind of calling, what is it that takes us the time to answer it or has us maybe resisting the invitation in the first place? Well, I think a really big part of it uh, in 2021 is distraction. We are constantly distracted from listening to to those calls, whether it be external or coming from within, from, from our own souls, you know. And so consumption, this notion that more, 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 is what we need to be pursuing, individualism, the rampant individualism of our culture 
has distracted us away from those moments where we can listen and pay attention to it and also trust it. We've lost trust in our ability to use ourselves as a guide, you know? And so we grasp outwards. Our entire culture is grasping outwards at certainty and fixes. Something like 90% of all technology that has been developed in the last 30 years is geared towards getting rid of discomfort, getting rid of the uncertainties and the doubts that life presents, you know? So we don't even have to wonder how long our takeaway or our delivery pizza is going to take because there's a little orb that follows it through our suburb, you know, and gives us an exact estimation of when it's going to arrive. I mean, the extent to which we outsource sort of authority in our lives is just ridiculous. And of course, when things go wrong, we all become Karens, right? We want to see the manager, we place complaints, and this is how we're spending our time. Rather than going, all right, this is my responsibility, and even if it's not my responsibility, I'm going to do something anyway. That's called adulthood. And and I write about this in this one wild and precious life, and I sort of, you know, I really try to answer that very question that you've asked me. Why is it that we've become what, and I refer to this word, ascetic, it's a Greek word that means list, uh, being in a state of listless slothfulness. We're, we're kind of half asleep. We've become so overwhelmed that we withdraw. And so we don't want to attend to the hard work. We've, that, that muscle has become flaccid, that muscle that goes harden up, fight, you know, face what you need to face, roll up your sleeves and do the job. We kind of think, oh, there must be somebody else to do this, an app a piece of technology, someone we can complain to. So what that means is we're, we're, as a culture, we're in a suspended state of adolescence. We are not stepping into adulthood. So that would be my answer to the question is adulthood is really about sitting, and this is another phrase I use in the book, sitting in cool aloneness, being able to sit with ourselves and not flick through our phones and actually be in our own company and be able to listen to what our integrity is steering us to do. And we're out of practice. And I I really do try to present an argument that shows compassion for where we're at rather than go, we're failures. We've got to go off and do some self-help courses to get back on track. In fact, no, it's actually, we've just got to, we've got to back off. We've got to stop. Just stop, do less. My salve is actually far simpler, far more elegant and far more joyous than I think a lot of people have been led to believe. And that is to go back to nature, to go back to our nature, just to sit, to sit and stay longer, to just sit in our shit, you know? Life is shit. Sit in it. Sit in it. And it's like, you know how you watch little kids, they go and find like a muddy puddle and they'll, they'll hunt it out, right, in the park and they'll go and sit in it and it's all kind of nice and soft and, you know, they sit in the shit and they just love it and then they max it and they have fun and, and that's what we've, we've forgotten. We've, we've, we've lost our true nature. We've, we've lost our connection with nature, the congruence that nature can provide. The power of stillness. I, I think it's just one of the like, most important commodities in my life that did not exist in large part because of the technology and the distraction and the calendar and the agenda often of other people that was keeping me from actually having close proximity to my feelings and the stuff that ends up, of course, needing examination. But when you're able to, and and it's scary for people, because I think a lot of times we don't want to have to necessarily deal with 
what's behind that voice in my head? What's at the root of that feeling I'm feeling? And yet, when you can like carve that time, create that time, you can often, even though it will in, inevitably come in friction, the friction is what helps you have a breakthrough. Always. We don't have a dialogue around things being hard and that hard things are good because you're absolutely right. It's that breakthrough that comes about from wrestling in our stuff. It's the wrestle that actually sees us lift. It's the wrestle that leads to creativity. It's a noble wrestle. And we're forgotten and we're discouraged from having that moral wrestle with ourselves, you know, and and with life and everything. We kind of run away from it. It's too hard. It's too scary. And we, we think that discomfort is wrong. And I listen to young people in particular who just don't even have an understanding that, yeah, life is pretty hard, you know, and and we cocoon ourselves from everything except for real life. And so what ends Mm -hmm. up happening? We, We don't end up living real life. We live this kind of diet version of it this kind of pretend artificial version of it, which doesn't get into the the guts of it, you know. And, you know, you can use the example of the the irritation of the sand produces the pearl. It's the grist in the running track that enables a high jumper to get lift. It's always the irritation, right, The, the discomfort that produces the thing that goes on to be the wonderful thing, you know. And we just... Oh, the muscle gets broken down to get built back up. Yeah, for sure. Mm, yeah. Well, what's interesting when, when you say uh, adulthood, one of the things I think of is just this like notion of taking agency over your life, like having some accountability, responsibility for controlling the controllables inside of your space and not depending on or leaving the things that will happen to you to the circumstances around you necessarily. And you've obviously had a, an incredible career, but I'm wondering if where you find yourself now is in any way a reflection of some point at which you had a moment of agency. Hey, I am now going to take and really run with my ability to control what I can and, and not let the world, the day, the current, the whatever be the thing that dictates whether I have the kind of day I'd hope for, feel the way I'd hope to when I'm by myself. Yeah, there is a, there is a moment. The great thing about writing books, right? all of these things you answer for yourself. When you get asked these questions, you go, yes, I've got the anecdote for that. So in First We Make the Beast Beautiful, which is my, oh gosh, it took seven years, Dave, to write that thing. I travelled the world and I spoke to hundreds of experts. His Holiness the Dalai Lama, um, Brene Brown, Oprah's life coach. Like I went everywhere and I just dug into, you know, Mark Manson, of course. That's how he ended up reading my book. He wanted, he was probably flicking through trying to find a bit, you know, with him in it. But yes, I do. I, I chronicle the moment. I've got bipolar. I was diagnosed with that when I was 21, when I was living in the States, actually. Uh, and I've got obsessive compulsive disorder and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And all of these things came to a head when I was 34. I'd been the editor of Cosmo from 29 to 34. I was in a tough relationship. I had got off track. My values, I was no longer aligned with my values and I'd had the taps and then I'd had the push and then I got the almighty, you know, slap down from life because I was not turning up to my appointment with life. And so um, there was a very much a, you know, dark, what's it called? Dark night of the soul moment. 
mm-hmm. where I had not slept for three days. I'd lost everything. I had I could not walk anymore. My, I had an autoimmune disease, Hashimoto's, which is a thyroid disease, and it had slammed me. I'd been robbed two weeks after my insurance ran out. I had my surfboard and my mountain bike in my car. The whole car got taken. And again, you know, no insurance. It was just one thing after another. And it was just like, life was like really shaking me up. And there was a morning where I woke up. It was a, it was actually around about this time of year. And I had some of those hideous, you know, those mirrored wardrobes, you know, which you can't escape. And I was lying in the fetal position. I'd been there for a couple of days and um, I could no longer see myself in the mirror. And I had this really disassociative moment. And I had a moment where I was ready to die. And it was, you know, suicidal ideation, very, very calm. You know, it wasn't, it just came to me that that was, I'd hit the cul-de-sac of life. I'd explored all options and I felt that there was nothing left. And that frantic grasping outwards, you know, thinking, oh, if I do this, if I do that. Um, And the ideas I came up with, Dave, for my salvation during that time, I mean, gosh, they were creative. But none of them actually came to fruition because none of them were right. They did not sit with me in the end. So I had this moment where I was like, right, I'm ready to die. And I was, I, I was seconds away from, from taking my own life. And then I had this moment, penny drop moment, where I went, hang on, well, I've tried everything, but, and I'm ready to exit. And what if I just like abort all of the rules of life, all the expectations And I just kind of stepped back into life on my own terms with just the clothes on my back, which is pretty much all I have, you know, by this stage. And I just head out there. I head out there and run the experiment to see what happens if I don't care about any of that old stuff, any of the expectations. With Hashimoto's, you lose your looks, right? It's cruel. My hair fell out. I put on, I think, I think about 35 pounds, your nails fall out. I couldn't sleep. It was just, you know, it was a mess and my ego was shattered. So all I had left was literally what I was wearing and a sense of integrity. And so I got up, I went and stood at the fridge and ate peanut butter from the jar and all this stuff started to happen. So it was a really big reckoning where I made that choice that I was going to live life on my own terms. And then I set up these buttresses to ensure that I don't slip backwards again. And so packed everything up and I moved to an army shed in the forest outside Byron Bay, which is about eight hours north of Sydney. And I lived there for a year and a half and I got pretty radical. I had to get a job. So I wrote a column once a week on how to make life better. Literally, that was because I went two birds with with one stone. I might as well get paid by Rupert Murdoch to do something that will actually benefit me. And one of those experiments was quitting sugar, which I knew I had to do if we're going to talk about things that we've been avoiding, you know, because I tell you what, when you're an author and when you are a motivational kind of person, we are so seductive with ourselves, right? We can convince ourselves we've got everything sorted, you know, and really um, there's generally something there that we haven't gone near and we we managed to get everybody to to not ask us about it. But, yes, I had a bunch of those and they were revealed and I, and I yes, the, the I Quit Sugar business actually stemmed from that quite by accident and it was just sort of gradual, gradual healing of myself. One of the big things, and there's a point to this, I set up, I had to get an accountant as I started to make some money from all of this. And uh, one of the things I said to him is, 34, I had this big crash and I made a promise to myself never to get caught up again. So what I'm going to do is 
in five years' time, I want to make enough money in five years' time so I can retire, live off the basic wage, the minimum wage, until I'm 94, which is when I plan on retiring, and I want to be of service. And I will get rid of, I'll pass on any abundance that I get above that nice, comfortable base wage, that living wage. So that's what I did. And at five years to the week, my accountant, Harry, rang me and I actually share this story in um, this one wild and precious life. And he said, right, you've achieved your goal. You're sorted. Now what? And I went, all right, shut down. I quit sugar, give the whole lot away. And that's what I did. Amazing. Okay. First thing that comes to mind, there's this great line in Fight Club. Tyler Durden says, it's only after we've lost everything that we're free to do anything. Yes. You had the, I've already lost everything. So I'm free to do anything moment. And it is legitimately freedom. And hey, guess what? There's plenty of people that had a 2020 that feels like everything was taken away from them. And you can either see that as loss or freedom. I'm choosing freedom. And man, I've had a fantastic year, even though I lost a lot of amazing things in my life, relationships, identity, status, whatever it might be, had to die. But in that, created an opportunity to be free. Um, But I do love too, that in the midst of this, then the sugar moment, the I quit sugar piece that ends up becoming the thing that affords you even more freedom and abundance that allows you to plow back into people is born. Can you talk just a little bit about like, as you then are inside of the space where quitting sugar is a thing, how did it go from a thing that you were doing for you or writing about for a, you know, a, a, a weekly column to a movement that became as big as it ended up becoming? Yeah, I mean, it was very organic, so to speak. So my column was called This Week I dot, 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 meditate with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, um, jump out of a plane with Richard Branson, quit sugar. So it was I quit sugar was literally just the name of the column that week. And then it was a blog post where I went down rabbit holes. And the great thing about being bipolar is you go down a rabbit hole, you don't emerge until you know everything about it, right? So I went down for two years. I was attending obesity conferences. I was speaking at various symposiums to do with diabetes. And it was all very new science. A lot of the stuff we know today was hypothesis and it wasn't sort of as gold standard as nutritional science can get. So um, it was a really exciting time. And I was dealing with a lot of American thinkers, you know, Gary Torbs and uh, gosh, all their names are escaping me. But yes, there's a whole bunch of them who are all in this space. And we all sort of, you know, frantically emailed each other and shared different findings. So I just explored and I went down deeper and deeper. And one of my commitments was I, Seth Godin, that wonderful marketing mind um, from the States, he taught me this in one of the interviews. He said, are real artists give first. And so I actually gave all of this information away and ran my eight-week program. Eight weeks was based on the science that showed that, you know, it takes about 60 days to shift a habit legitimately, a, a sort of a physical and an emotional habit when you have the two intertwined. You know, I, I ran the program on Facebook in the early, very, very early days. You know, the dinosaurs were still wandering the planet at this stage. And I just did it for free. And it's like, he was like, you build the community and then they'll follow once you, you know. And then so I then produced a cookbook and, you know, I was one of the first people in Australia to do an ebook. You know, this is, in, this is all in about 2011. And so I produced it. I worked out how to do it online. I spent a hundred bucks work, you know, doing a little course. Uh, put the, put it up on Amazon and it, it sold out like it, well, not sold out electronic, but it became a bestseller. 
It then became a print book. So a publisher came knocking. It did really well here. My Australian publisher was like, oh, yeah, we'll just print 8,000. The 8,000 sold out in two days. And they were like, and this is early days social media because this all started. I remember I went to the States to do a story on Twitter, this new thing called Twitter. You know, I was at the coal face as the dinosaurs left the earth and Twitter arrived. Yeah, so I, I, I was using all these new types of social media to get out there and communicate it. And so nobody really knew where all of this would head. And so the book sold out. Um, they had to do frantic reprints and more reprints. I think we did three reprints in a month. And then the US um, picked up on it. And I flew to the US and Carson Daly on the Today Show, for whatever reason, took an interest in it. I went on the program, cooked two desserts in five minutes. It was frantic, it was mad. And the next day my my book was a New York Times bestseller. I then turned it into um, a program. So I built a website, I ended up with 25 staff running it. Several million people did the program. Very bespoke, handheld program, essentially teaching people how to cook real food. It's as simple as that you know yeah just kept on growing and growing and growing and and I just kept on going where people needed me to go and that's the great thing about social media if you use it really beautifully is you get the feedback in real time and you're having a dialogue with your community and it's just wonderful and intimate and real and you're doing exactly what the community are requiring you know so yeah that's 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 how it you follow the no, but you, you followed the signs of life. Life in some ways handed you some signs that you had to follow as an individual, but then this interaction also led you to following the signs of what was a need. You plug the, the 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 thing that could ultimately serve the audience with that list of hey, here's here's what might help. And of course, they gravitate toward it. So then in your second book, you go into what you just said seven to eight years of writing. I can't even imagine. First, we make the beast beautiful. Here you're tackling the subject of anxiety, other mental health disorders, and interviewed other people who also could relate to, suffered from, had experience with the things that you were ultimately writing about. And in this, you get to sit with some of the greatest people on the planet. You named a few earlier. What was this experience like? I mean, the the hope of this show is to create a bit of an empathy bridge between people on the show and the listener in the audience. And here you had a chance in real life to sit with people who you could extend an empty bridge with to have them explain a little bit of their own personal experience with things that are in some ways taboo, in some ways not often talked about, but man, universally things that people are dealing with. Absolutely. And it was, I was, I had a particular mission in mind as per the title. I was wanting to come up with a more beautiful, positive way of viewing anxiety. So I I've put it through the philosophical, spiritual and evolutionary biology lens to show that anxiety isn't something necessarily to be just tolerated, nor is it something to learn to live with. Instead, I show how it can become a superpower and how it's become my superpower. So while I was writing this book, I was running the business. On top of that, I was also living as a nomad. So up until COVID hit and we all got stuck, you know, you mentioned stillness before, this is the longest I've lived anywhere in my life. So I lived on the road for eight years out of um, one backpack. So after I went to the hinterland army shed in the forest, I just didn't replace anything. I had about three suitcases worth of belongings and it just whittled down and down and down until I had carry-on luggage 
So I think that's about £35. That was all of my worldly possessions, you know. And here I am in my mid-40s and I just wandered the world. I'd come back into Australia when I was required. I had a, a manager that was set up. I'd go out, I'd interview people. I went and did some work in, um, you know, with the Blue Zones, the National Geographic Blue Zones project, you know, living in, in Greece. I just kind of just meandered and wandered and I was a nomad trying to find my tribe, trying to find the information and the truth that I needed. So that's why I suppose it took seven years. I literally had to go and live it out. I had to live it out. I, I And I write the book in real time. So you're there with me on the journey. And it's the same with this latest book, This One Wild and Precious Life. I hiked that book out. Three years, I'm hiking around the world and I'm hiking with poets, I'm hiking in the footsteps of Nietzsche and other philosophers in Switzerland and Jordan, and I, I live it out. I'm there with the reader. It's in real time. I sort of I write in a meta fashion, I suppose. So, yeah, I suppose um, to answer your question, seven years, yes, but I was living it. I needed to know my stuff before I reported back from the front line. And it, it, I also wanted to meet the people and I wanted to sort of engage with them. And it's the juiciness that, you know, I mean, it's also very self-serving. I happen to make money out of the thing I'd want to do anyway, because this was my journey. I needed to work it out. All I do is I go off and work it out because my bipolar is my gift. It affords me an ability to go and deep dive and not emerge until I have what I hope is a succinct way of presenting information and a fresh way of looking at things. And then I share that information. It's a bit like with I Quit Sugar, right? I don't, my book's not called You Must Quit Sugar. It's I Quit Sugar. I gave it a go. I went and found out all the information that can help you do it and make you feel like you're doing the right thing. And here it is. So you don't have to do it. That's pretty much what I do. It's amazing. So when it comes to anxiety specifically, do you have things that you have as your go-tos for dealing with your own anxiety? You, you framed it in a way that sounded like you have a relationship now that is a positive one with something that often people have assigned negative attribution. But how do you deal with your anxiety if that's the right way to even phrase it? Yeah, yeah, we'll work with the, the common parlance. There's no point mixing it up. But, yes, anxiety. So I, I have to be fairly vigilant. So I eat pretty well. I don't eat a lot of sugar. I mean, I should point out to everyone I eat 90% dark chocolate for breakfast every morning and a black coffee. That works for me and a bunch of Brazil nuts. I, I eat well. I, um, I, I eat abundantly. I meditate once or twice a day. I, I veer off course every now and then and I come back to it, you know, but I think that's part of the deal, right? It's that constant wrestle. Yep. I exercise. Really, I would say that exercise, ex joyous exercise is my saviour and I hike. So I get out into nature. So I, I, I pay an exorbitant amount of rent to live across the road or just, you know, 100 metres from Bondi Beach and I get into that ocean as often as I can. So I swim across I'm a bad swimmer, but I do it anyway. Again, wrestling. And then I and I hike whenever I can. And my little foster daughter, she she's join joins me now. She loves hiking. And I just get out. I get in, out into the dirt and the rocks and the trees. And sometimes I camp overnight on my own and I just lie there and connect. And that brings me into, into congruence. And I this is one of the things that I can really, really recommend. It's a twofold thing. A lot of anxiety is a result of us not being able to think in a discerning way. You know, our thoughts are all scattered. The great thing about walking, particularly walking in nature, 
But walking actually, we evolved as upright beings, okay, and our brains develop this left-right motion and it takes over the part of the brain that controls the flight or fight mechanism. When we are walking, it shuts down the anxious part of the brain and it enables the prefrontal cortex to come back into, into gear, which is the discerning thinking part of the brain. So anyone who has walked and found that, that all these wonderful thoughts come to them, that is why you've shut down the amygdala and you've opened up the prefrontal cortex. So walking does that just as a matter of biology. The other thing that does it is handwriting. And it also goes at the same pace as a discerning thought. And so I handwrite all my books. I then type them in and it gets a second sort of go. But yeah, the handwriting is my way of doing it. So when I've had um, really bad panicky moments when I've been around the world, you know, I'll just go and get, grab a receipt or a or a serviette, and I get fired a pen from someone and I just write it out, I write it out, and that slows it all down. So there's some of the things that I do. I've also just allowed, I mean, you know what? Getting older is also one of the best fixes for anxiety. You accumulate wisdom. You also, Steve Jobs has this wonderful commencement speech, I think he made to Stanford in the, in the 90s, and what he said is that when he was, he was anxious and in his late teens, early 20s, he was like, God, there's all these things happening and none of it makes sense. I've done this over here. I quit university. I went and did this. And, you know, and it's not until you're old enough that you can turn around and see, ah, all those dots link up and they actually create a thread of meaning. But you can't actually link them up until you've lived long enough. And you've yeah. had enough dots on the page, you know. And so I think that just getting older and you start to accept a few things. I mean, there's a price to pay as well. That eternal vigilance also means that, you know, I've been single for a very long time and I'm very open about that. And I try to also maximise that experience and find intimacy and, and human connection in all kinds of other ways. I also have moments of real despair and it also means my engagement in the climate movement. I mean, I go down to some dark places, but the difference is I now know that that's important and I now know that that's what life is about, particularly at this juncture in history. Here's the thing. Movement in, in my dealing with my own anxiety has been, I've described it, it's this mix of, of church and therapy. I run a ton and I have so much clarity in part because of what you described in the way that one part of the brain shuts down and it opens up the other. I am have no idea how brain science works, but now I'm smarter for hearing you explain <laughs> it. And now I want to put my shoes on and go running. It's certainly every single time I start to feel a certain way of overwhelm, anxiety, whatever, moving my body has just been a thing. But also I was admittedly late to this very conversation for having an opportunity to spend time with my 99-year-old grandmother, who I happen to be in town near, and in just sitting with her for an hour, she has had many, many hard things happen in her life. And yet she just keeps coming back to how she's been able to, because of her age, see how all of it worked together for good. And there's something in, yep, me getting older, but even just sitting with someone who has the gift of perspective that can take whatever it is that I'm going through and help me see, oh, from that bigger picture, someone else explaining it to me who has had more life experience Maybe it can be a little calmer for getting an opportunity to see it through that lens, their lens. Okay, so three years then of hiking in the most spectacular places on the planet with some amazing human beings lead to the next book that's now in the U.S., been out for a couple of months, This 
one wild and precious life. If there was a single promise in this book or message that you'd hope for someone to feel drawn to by it, what is, what's, the, what's the takeaway from this? I mean, there's a bunch, but it's to connect. I say this on the back of the book. We will fight and do everything we can. We will go into what I call kamikaze mode to save what we love. You know, we all know those stories of the, the tiny mother who can lift a car off her toddler when required. And that's what humans are known for. We are 11th hour kamikaze saviors. And so I basically don't want people to rest on their laurels, but we're in that 11th hour. We are a few minutes from midnight right now in terms of saving this planet. We are, we are in the final few seconds of the football game or the basketball or baseball game and we're the losing side. We're down three points, right? And we have the opportunity right now to throw all the rules out the window and go into kamikaze mode and throw our life, our souls, our true sense of what it means to be a human at the situation. And so to do that, we need to love something and that something is life. We need to love our nature. We need to love the nature of the planet, the world that we live in. So my big thing, my big call to arms is to get out into nature to remind ourselves of what it is that we love and to also come back into our own true nature and reconnect, which really means stepping away from that individualistic um, capitalist, more, more, more distracted, numb way of being because that's disconnected. Yeah, That is not our true nature. We have wandered from it so far, we need to come back home. And that is what my book is. My book is sort of like a coming back home to who we truly are and then using that, that to actually then fire up and do everything we can all at once. Not like our bit because that's an adolescent mindset. As adults, as the heroes, and it's a very much a hero's journey type thing, Our mission is to fire up and do everything we can, absolutely everything we can, all at once and joyously. Yeah. And and look, the big thing that my meditation teachers have taught me through when I was writing the book, because I hit the despair button over and over again. And I was like, my God, the subtitle says it's a path forward to hope. I've got to kind of find this, you know, bloody path forward. I don't have it. And he said, Sarah, Show us the way, show us the charm of the way you live because you love living the way you live. You don't do it because you're a self-flagellating Catholic, you know, who needs to like, you know, go through the hard yards to feel worthy. You're doing it because you actually really love it. And I do. So we've got to make this new way more charming than the status quo. And I think we're fed up with the status quo. So my book, I mean, it's a psychedelic cover with, you know, kind of gloss and sun and beautiful flowers. I designed the cover in four days and I design all my fonts. I designed the cover, the, the inside of it so that you have a column where people can write notes and people will often write notes and then pass it on to the next person. So that, they have my mm-hmm. notes because I write notes in the column, in the side columns. Then other people write it and then I pass it on and it's just this lovely layered notebook of a book. Yeah, I just want to make it that it's the thing that we're all going to choose and we're going to choose it damn fast because we're going to have to be fast. Well, as a human who's also written something that the events of 2020 had an impact on the final product, were, were the things that were happening in 2020 something that changed the way that you approached anything in the final passes of the book? Oh, my God, yes. So it was very yeah. real time. Um, the book was due at the beginning of 2020, 
And then we had the bushfires here, those terrible bushfires that wiped out over a billion wildlife and 20% of our forests. So I was in the midst of that. We were in shutdown. Then, of course, COVID hit in March and we did a radical shutdown here in Australia. The entire country did not go anywhere, did not leave the house for six six weeks. In some cases, it was 110 days in parts of Australia. And, of course, we now have absolute freedom. So I was in the middle of that. Then the Black Lives Matter stuff happened and I've been engaged in that world here in Australia. So that impacted me, you know, incredibly. And, uh, yeah, um, on and on it went. And eventually my friend, and so I kept rewriting it. I had to rewrite through different lenses and bring more to it. And all it did was reinforce my original message. It was a gift in some ways. I know it's a horrible way to put it, but my friends just said, could you please get this book to the printer because aliens are going to land soon. Like, like what else can happen? <laughs> so, yes, and eventually it went to the printers in, um, oh, gosh, it was late July and it came out in early October. So it was a fast turnaround in the end. But, yes, there was lots of real-time real write- rewriting. Well, if you are listening to this right now, you need to pick up this book. It's called This One Wild and Precious Life. Uh, read it. If uh, people are not currently following you, want to have uh, a, a chance to dive deeper in the work that you've done, Sarah, where can the humans who are listening right now find out more about you or follow you on the socials? Well, the world's most straightforward name, sarahwilson.com, S-A-R-A-H, wilson.com is my website. From there, you'll be able to connect to my Instagram. My Instagram is underscore sarahwilson underscore. I Instagram a fair bit. And I've got a podcast called Wild, which is on all the various platforms, Wild with Sarah Wilson. I wanted to talk about this podcast. Hold on. Wild with Sarah Wilson. Tell us a little bit about what you do in your show. Is it uh, you just talking? Do you have interviewed uh, guests? What, what, what is the format? I select various people I've interviewed over the years who've got a wild idea and that, and that they live to. I've found that they lived this wild idea and they've inspired me and I go and revisit them. So they're, they're featured in my books. My readers have been really intrigued, so I go and do a deep dive and I ask more beautiful questions and we go on a meandering deep dive into their wild idea that they live by. So, so that's the concept. My first series was um, I spoke to Rutger Bregman, who wrote Humankind, Seth Godin. Let me see, who else did I speak to? David Pocock, who's an incredible rugby player who's become a conservationist and gave everything up everything up at the peak of his career to dedicate himself completely uh, to the to the climate. And then um, Sia, the singer, uh-huh. is wild. Amazing. So, yeah, a bunch of different people, and they'll be recording series two shortly. Yeah. Ah, uh, very cool. That's fantastic. And it's anywhere podcasts are available, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yes. Excellent. All right. Final question. Every week we ask our guests this same question, that is, if you could share, maybe it'd be difficult, Uh, One key takeaway with our audience, it could be a question, actionable piece of advice. What is the single thing that you would leave with our guests between now and next week's episode? Okay, I'm going to leave a question, and I think it's a great one to reflect on. And I pose it in my book towards the end. If we were to lose it all, how would you want to live? And I'll give you my answer. My answer is Mm. to live my life as a study in work and love. And to me, you know, that is a worthwhile way to live in any interim in any scenario but I'd be interested for people to actually ask that question of themselves like if we were to lose it all you know what's left for you what is left as a fundamental oh so good ladies and gentlemen thank you to Sarah Wilson for jumping on if you enjoyed this episode and how could you have not please take a picture of the podcast on the device you're listening to it on 
tag myself, tag Sarah, let us know what you thought, share this with every human being you've ever met in your entire life. Go out and buy this one wild and precious life. Look for Sarah's podcast, Wild. And between now and next week, contemplate this very important, big, huge question. If you lost everything, what would you live for? We'll see you next week on the Rise Together podcast. Thank you so much, Sarah, for being here. Oh, my pleasure. It was fun. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.